We are now well into a sermon series on the kingdom of God, and I'm going to catch us up again if you are new here uh, to where we're at, and um, the whole cosmos, the farthest we can reach, the farthest we can look with our telescope and far beyond that. Um, both things uh, that we perceive created and those things that we have no idea that even exist that are created, all fall under the kingship of God. Um, Nothing can challenge the authority of God. Uh, All things were created by Him and were created for Him. Um, God is king over all things. And that's where we start the story of the kingdom of God. It doesn't start with with the planet created and God trying to, uh, in some way, submit that planet to his will. It starts just, the whole story starts with God. And then God, out of his goodness, his greatness, his power, decides to create a world. Um, And the world had a lot of things in it. Um, But in that creation, he created something special. It says in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, that he made man and woman in his image. It says, in the image of God, he created them male and female. Um, And what that means is God created us in a special way, apart from everything else, to represent him to the world, his goodness and greatness. Um, It meant that that whenever uh, we go anywhere, that we're supposed to carry with us his presence because he, he meant for us to not just be his presence in the world, but to experience in an unhindered way His presence. And with that, we're supposed to know our place in the world, which now seems very much in conflict wherever we are. (laughs) Wherever we are, we're kind of uncertain of our place and our position with everything else. But God didn't create it that way. God created us for uh, to know who we are and where we stand in relationship to other things. Because he meant for us to show his goodness to the world, right? That means when... uh, an animal sees us, or when you see me and I see you, we're meant to reflect the goodness of God to one another in that same way. When God sees us, we're meant to reflect his goodness back to him. And yet, something went terribly wrong in this kingdom of God, because God, in his um, creating of us in his image, he gave us incredible power. And what we did is we handed that power over when, when the temptation came and said, well, Uh, You aren't just going to be created in his image. You also can be God's yourself. And we said, well, that sounds like a good deal. And it wasn't a good deal. Because in in disbelieving the word of God and believing the word of someone else and just buying fully into that, we gave up our right, really, to rule with him. We gave the rule to somebody else. And that created tension and anxiety and fear and everything else that now kind of dominates the communities and the cultures that we live in. Um, that's the, the bad news that follows the, the awesome, um, the awesome uh, creation of God. The bad news is that we have kind of abandoned the goodness of God and chose our own way for ourselves. And, and to kind of uh, save that, what we did is we created, started creating our own kingdoms, right? We thought, oh, hey, you look stronger than the rest of these people, so why don't we put you in charge, Right? 
And so uh, time after time, year after year, as we put people in positions of authority and said, we're going to give all authority to you, they over and over again, to this present day, have not led us in a way that honors and glorifies God um, like he created us to honor and glorify him. God himself did not abandon us, though. And that, that's the good news. That instead of God going, well, you chose your own way, so peace out. Right? What God did is God said, I am going to relentlessly pursue you as people I've created. You can't get away from me. Right? I'm, going to, I'm going to chart the course. I'm going to make the plan where you can be mine again. Where, where instead of following your own rules and trying to create your own way, I'm going to recreate you into the people that I made you to be. And his plan was, was not to send some powerful angel or anything else, but Emmanuel, God with us. God himself would come, and God himself would save his people. And that's what we find in this amazing little crib feeding trough in Bethlehem, a weak baby known as God, Jesus, who would come to save his people. Um, and so Jesus grew. It says he grew in favor with man. And yet as he started speaking, people at first were impressed by him. But then, then they didn't really know what to do with him because his words weren't the words of the kind of person that we would typically put in power. Right? The person that we want to empower is the person who's going to conquer, the person who's going to win, the person who's going to beat up the other guy and submit them. And that's not the Jesus we meet. Um, The sights and sounds of the kingdom, which we talked about last week, are for those, he says, who can hear them because they are humble and they are meek. And they're not just trying to get ahead. They're trying to to finally hear what they were made for. And that's kind of where we're going to enter today uh, in seeing Jesus as the conquering king. Jesus is a conquering king uh, in a way that we wouldn't ask for, we wouldn't expect, we probably wouldn't even want, and yet this is how we are saved. Whenever I think of, of conquering and power, um, I, have, I have so many images that come through my mind of, of um, people we have got to spend time with over the years as the Coffee Oasis. Um, literally, I have these, these vivid images of young men who would come in to the Coffee Oasis, and, and one particularly, as I wrote this sermon, I just kept thinking of it. It was this, this young man who stopped growing probably about the age of 12, right? And so he was like 4'11", probably, and just skinny as could be. But he, he walked around like a rooster, just pluming his feathers, you know, like, like as, as if like, like he was just the strongest thing on the planet. And, um, and I remember it, it created this real... Um, <laughs> interesting feeling in me of like, oh, I just want to take this guy down a notch. That happens sometimes. <laughs> um, when you meet somebody and, and all of a sudden, like, like, who's in charge? And this young man, because he would walk around with posturing, that's what it's called, right? Posturing. I thought, oh, how easy it would be to make uh, just a punitive judgment of him, just to say, like, oh, yeah. And just insult him in a way that it would make him humbled, right? And that, that's kind of what we do, right? I, this, isn't, this isn't me being proud of what's going on in my own heart, but this is, this is what happens. What we do when we, when we find others, be that individuals 
or other countries or other people groups that are representing themselves in a way to show their own position or authority, whether it is our pride or that we're scared or that we're frustrated, what we want to do is we want to win against them, right? Because if you don't win against them, where do we stand in position with it? Well, if we show our weakness, they're probably just going to take advantage of that, right? And this is what we see all throughout history, currently in the world, the desire to fight, to win, to destroy those that are around us. There's this incredible quote that I read just a couple months ago to you guys by a guy named Jean Vanier. He said, Behind the need for me to win, there are my own fears and anguish, the fear of being devalued or pushed aside, the fear of opening up my heart and being vulnerable or feeling helpless in front of others in pain. There's the pain and brokenness of my own heart. But instead of that being exposed, because there's no safety in this world, what I do is I just... I try to strengthen my position. And so, so how does Jesus come into that? Jesus, who isn't trying to uh, prove that he has power, not trying to prove that he has authority over the whole cosmos and everything beyond that, how, how will Jesus act as he comes into this? Because let me tell you, throughout all time, Jesus is... Power, God's power has never been in question. There's never been a time, like even in the Old Testament with Job, I don't know if you remember the story of Job, but in the story of Job, like literally Satan has to come to, to God and be like, hey, so Job, can I tempt him? It's this interesting scenario that you find in the Old Testament where, where there's never been a time where God has not been the most powerful being in the whole universe. And yet, what happened? Well, we, we gave up our power, our position, our authority to another. And that's how Satan became the god of this world. And so how will Jesus come and be the conquering king? Well, the answer that he brings is very challenging for us because it isn't a physical answer. It's not a physical response, but it's a spiritual response. And now don't tune me out just because I've said the word spiritual. Right? I mean, like, always going there. Right? It, it isn't a physical response. It's a spiritual one, and he's revealing our deepest needs in it. So before we get into this, I'm just going to define for you spiritual really well. The majority of the word is, world is spiritual. People who identify themselves in some way being spiritual. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means a lot of different things. Right? Kind of base level for that is someone who says, well, I just believe there's something more. You know, probably the majority of people in America who, who would consider themselves spiritual don't know what they mean by that. They're just like, I'm just pretty certain that whatever that is, whether it's you see the beauty of laughter in a child or you look up at the stars and you realize that you're small, like, or you see just something that awes you and, and you realize that that isn't just your chemicals colliding with one another, right? but there's something inherent in that that is supernatural, right? That base level assumption of something that there's got to be more, right? The next stage is, is people saying, well, it's not just something more. There's a spirit or spirits out there that 
that somehow unite and empower and inspire, animate the world. It's kind of level two. Um, where we come out as Christians is that, yes, there's a spirit, and that spirit is God. And, and start of the story, like we just said, that, that in the beginning was God, and God, who is spirit, created everything. And so everything is from him, and everything is for him. And so that's kind of the beginning assumption. Every time we come on a Sunday morning is that, that everything is created from him and for him, but we don't typically act like that. <laughs> right? Because when we get in those places of fear and anxiety, our, our kind of like mode of operation is what? Our mode of operation is typically physical, right? Well, I need to cut this person off. I need to be physically aggressive. I need to figure it out. And yet, the spiritual response is very different. Um, Paul explains this in a way that's far better than, than I'm explaining it to you. So I'll just read it from him. In Acts 17, um, Paul comes to a very spiritual place. Um, he comes to Athens, and Athens is known for tons of gods, right? They have a, the pantheon, which just means lots of gods, right? And so he comes to this place, and they have so many gods, they, they stop knowing how to name them, right? And so you have it. There's more of a story behind it than that. But, but you get to Acts 17, and... And in verse 22, Paul, he stands up in the Areopagus and he says, People of Athens, Acts 17, 22, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. Uh, see, we don't, we don't like that word. We use the word spiritual now, but, but they're, pretty, they're synonymous. Religion is just the way you practice your spirituality, okay? So people are like, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. Right? Uh, that's ridiculous. Like, Religion is just the way you practice your spirituality, okay? You're religious. Um, So he says here, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walk around and look carefully at your objects of worship, I have found an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. So Paul comes, he sees that he's like, they're like, there's this powerful thing, and we don't know what it is. And Paul comes in and goes, okay, I see that you want to worship. There's something in you that you are, you're passionate about it. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to describe to you who that God is. And this is what he says. Starting in verse 24, he says, the God who made the world and everything in it, the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples built by human hands. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everything, everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. And that's, right, remember the song we sang earlier? It's your breath and our lungs, so we pour out our praise. We pour, that's, that's what's going on here. It says, for in him we live and move and have our being. And then he, he narrows in on who this God is, declaring the story of Jesus. He says, therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being 
is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human hands, by human design or skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. He speaks to them about Jesus. He goes, what was so vague, what was so general, what was fascinating to you, I'm going to show you, it's, it's Jesus. And so let's now look at Jesus, who gives a spiritual answer to what we perceive as just being a physical problem. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to, to uh, John 6. Um, what we're going to find is that... <laughs> As we think the mission of God matches perfectly with our mission, because we, feel, <laughs> we think our mission is just kind of the distress that's going on in our own hearts, right? We're like, okay, I need help. And then we think God will come being like, boom, helped. But that's not the way it works. And so what God does is, as he sends Jesus, Jesus comes... And in, in John 6, it shows one of the, the miracles uh, that he, he shows to prove his power and authority over all things, which is feeding 5,000 people. So he, he gives them bread. He, he feeds them in that way that they're like, we have needs. You've met our needs. You've met our tangible needs. Now we're going to... What? Well, John 4, 6, 14, and 15 says they, they want him to make him king, right? It says, after the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. Jesus, knowing they attended to come and make him king by force, withdrew to the mountains. And so, so here we come, Jesus, conquering Jesus, and it's like, the people, you think, finally get it, and they're like, he has power. Let's go. Let's make him king. And Jesus doesn't want that. Jesus doesn't desire their kingship because their kingship, what happened was he provided a physical need. They needed bread. He provided bread, so they're going to make him king, right? Well, Jesus isn't going to have any of that. And the reason is, is because in providing them bread, that was in the end all for Jesus. Jesus describes that he is not just giving them physical bread, but literally he himself is the bread of life. And you see this in John 6, 35. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never go thirsty. He's taking them to a totally different level. He said, all you want is your physical needs provided for. That's all you want. That's all you've desired. Because I myself am the bread of life, and if you come to me, if you believe in me, your hunger, your thirst will get taken away. But they begin to grumble because he says he's come down from heaven. In 41, he says at this time the Jews began to grumble about him. They said, he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they said, is, not, is this not Jesus, Joseph's son, whose father, and Mary we, whose father and mother we know? How can he say he came down from heaven? And so we have Jesus going, hey, I'm, just gonna, I'm actually going to provide your needs. And they start grumbling about it. That's not what they want. 
And what we find is that many leave him. In verse 66, it says, From that time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. And so, so what changes from the very beginning of John 6, where they are ready to make him king, to the, the end of John 6, where they grumble, and it says they become dissatisfied, and they no longer want to follow him. <laughs> Isn't that what we're like as people? One moment we're like, Jesus, you're mine, right? I got the car I wanted, yes, right? <laughs> we're like, I prayed for a job, and I got the job. Jesus, you're king, and then something else happens, and Jesus is like, hey, that's not it. That's not, the pr- that's not the promise of following me. Because then Charleston happens. And we're like, oh, you're not king anymore. <laughs> because all along we've looked for physical things. And Jesus isn't promising physical things. He actually says, if you follow me, you need to take up your cross. Which is different. He says it's better to... to Lose the world, if that means keeping your soul. Most of us are so interested, so interested in gaining the world that we're willing to lose Jesus. And, and they still don't get it because you enter John 7, and listen to this. It says, after this, Jesus went to Galilee. He did not want to go in Judea because the Jewish leaders were looking for a way to kill him. This is really digressed fast. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, Leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works you do. Listen to this. It says, No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. So they still haven't got it. They go, Jesus, don't you get it? If you want to be famous, you need to get out there. Show people your stuff. Make some more bread for people. But that wasn't the mission of Jesus. It wasn't a temporary mission to fulfill temporary physical needs. In Matthew 16, it shows to the extent that this goes for the disciples. In Matthew 16, verse 21, Jesus is explaining to them. So, so you, have in, you have a lot of people following Jesus, but then you have these right, these. 12 guys that kind of stick close with him and they think he's crazy at times, but they're like, we've left everything, so we're not going to go anywhere. (laughs) And so he starts explaining to them really what's going on. And it says, he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders. And this is beautiful. It says that he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. And so so here he is with the core, right? Who you think they're going to get it. And he says, hey, what I'm going to do is I'm going to die but don't worry because I will come back to life again, right? We're talking about this spiritual transformation here. And this is the response. Peter took him aside and he says, it rebukes him and he says, never, Lord, this shall never happen. Do you get that? <laughs> so, so here this act that we look back on and say, this, is our, this saved me from my, my own misery, my own wretchedness, my own shame. This saved me from that. And when he declares that to the disciples in the intimacy of their own gathering, he's vulnerable with them and says, I'm going to die, but I will come back to life again. The disciples go, no, you will never die. That is a bad, bad, bad plan. (laughs) And this is what he says. Jesus turns to Peter and he says, get behind me, Satan. Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have the mind 
You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. How many of us are at this level? How many of us on a daily basis are like, Jesus, you don't know the right way. And Jesus goes, no, stop, stop. All you're thinking of is physical things. That's all you're thinking of. Your mind's consumed with that. Your mind's consumed with the world. In Matthew, as Jesus comes before Pilate, actually, I think it's in John, my correction, John 18, if you're going with me, um, Jesus stands before Pilate. So things have digressed very quickly for Jesus. Um, He's at a place now where everyone who has followed him up to this point has abandoned him. (laughs) No one wants a peace anymore. They're going to let Jesus fail by himself. Okay? That's That's where the story's at. And so he stands before Pilate, who's the leader of that community. And Pilate, in verse 33 of chapter 18 of John, he says, are you the king of the Jews? So I don't know if this is sincerity or he's kind of mocking him like no one's following you or are you still claiming to be king? Jesus says, is that your own idea or did others talk to you about me? It's kind of this interesting, (laughs) Jesus is like, "Do do you think I am? And and Pilate kind of steps out. He goes, am I a Jew? Your own people and chief priests hand you over to me. What is it you've done? Why, why, are no, why is no one following you anymore? How have you failed that miserably? Everyone wanted you to be king. And now look, they all want you to die now. And Jesus says this. He says in verse 36, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now... My kingdom is from another place. Jesus is kind of, again, letting us in, right? It's not physical. It's spiritual. Something else is happening, and yet everyone is missing it. Something else is happening, but everyone is missing it. Jesus is going to go on to conquer the world in the next hours. But this is what it's going to look like. Our king will be mocked and he will be beaten. He will be crowned with thorns. He will be crucified on a cross by those who he came to free. That is the conquest of our king, Jesus. Okay, now put that into comparison to every act of power and conquest we see and that we understand, ways we know how to represent ourselves or stand against things that oppress us. Does that look like victory or does that look like defeat? But in this, Jesus shows his unquestionable power and his unquestionable authority. And he shows that that really he is the one with authority because of this. Because in every other kingdom, listen to me, in every other kingdom, At all costs, people protect the king. And that is the power of the king. Does that make sense? Everyone in the kingdom does everything to protect the king. And that is the power of the king. In this kingdom, the king, at all costs, at the cost of his own life, lays it down for 
those who have rebelled against him and rejected him. And that is the power of the kingdom of God. That is incredible, right? No one would stand up for this king, this king who rules over all things. And what he did is that he came and showing his power, he triumphed, ensuring freedom for those who were in rebellion against him. Turn with me to to Romans 8, and, and Paul writes in an incredibly beautiful way about this. In Romans 8, verse 31 It says, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those who God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is it that condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, was raised to life, is at the right hand of God, and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, all these physical things, can these physical things separate us from the love of God? No. As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to the slaughter. That's the experience of these followers of Jesus. No, in all these things that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angel nor demon, neither present or future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything in all creation, nothing in all creation, all material things, all those things we put our hope in, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that, that is the conquest of King Jesus. The conquest of King Jesus is making it that, that nothing physical, nothing spiritual can separate us from him. You can go through a lot. You might die. But that was never the hope. <laughs> you living in your present form forever was never the hope. The hope of Jesus was to liberate you from the bondage of death, which is sin, and to free you spiritually to a new life in Him. In Colossians, it describes uh, what, what's spiritually happening as we, we see Jesus on the cross. In Colossians 2, 13 through 15, it says, When you were dead in your sins and the circumcision of your flesh, God made you alive in Christ. He forgave us all our sins. He canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away. He nailed it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross. So that, that was what was happening on the cross. All we saw, all we saw was God dying on the cross. That's why we mocked him. People, when Jesus was hanging there, said, you saved others, but you can't save yourself, not realizing what they saw was salvation taking place. That, that all your guilt and all your shame, it says, was nailed there to the cross. And, and all the powers that could shame you or condemn you, it says that as he was there, he shamed them and made a public spectacle of them because all their worst they could give to him. 
everything they could give to him. But what he did is he gave himself for the life of the world. And that's the story of the gospel. How do we respond to this? Well, one way we respond to this is pledging our allegiance to King Jesus, right? He's saying, Jesus, I have, I have tried pledging my allegiance to everything else, <laughs> to myself, to my friends, to my work, to my country, to my cool car, all those things. I've tried pledging my allegiance to that, saying, if if I devote myself to this, then it will give me freedom. So pledging our allegiance to Jesus is saying, it's you alone that can satisfy me. You are Lord, you are King, you are God, and I will obey you. And then we, we learn to live out lives of obedience. God said, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. And that is love for God, is obeying and walking in his way. Um, the other way we do that is by not just living physical lives, but living spiritual lives. Um, He welcomes us to see past physical things to what he is doing and what is going on in the world. That when something happens, when Charleston happens, we don't just go, death penalty! Right? Taking down the Confederate flag won't do anything. It might be a great idea to do that because it's, it's historically represents horrible things. But taking that down won't make anyone feel more free. Right? Like, we do, need to, we do need to act with justice, absolutely. And yet there is something deeper, and we need to look and pray for what's really going on, what causes the anger and the embitterment and the separation in our society. And you see this in Ephesians 6, where at the end of the letter... Paul writes, he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. The schemes to take you down. And and listen, it says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil. So it's not just we respond in, in trying just physically to figure out what happens, it says, God says, no, that's not the only way to respond. Are you people who, when you see the way Jesus conquered, he welcomes you to conquer in that same way, to give your life for the life of all people. A greater love is no man than to lay down his life for a friend, and that's what Jesus is calling you to join him in. And this is what he equips you to do that with is the armor of God. It says, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, the breastplate of righteousness in place, with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayer and requests. So when we enter this world that has so much physical animosity, and maybe even in our lives, physical issues, how do we respond to that? Well, Jesus isn't like, well, I gave you this magic hat. 
that you pull things out. No, <laughs> he goes, what I've given you is this. Listen to what he gives. You have truth. Right? You have righteousness. You have his own word. Right? You have faith. These things that seem so spiritual, and for a lot of us, we're like, give me the car, I'll be better. Right? No, see, we missed the point again, our, our battle. What we're up against is not flesh and blood. Our greatest needs aren't flesh and blood. Your heart does not desire what is material. And so, so what I invite you to do is look at the liberation that Jesus offers, that through his death... And the humility of that, he brings us new life. Look at him. Put your trust in him. And then walk out in obedience with these things that he's provided for you. Now, I don't expect, just because I, I mentioned them very quickly, that you're like, sweet, I'm all ready. Got my sword of the spirit. Got salvation. Got truth. Right? No. No. Like, you aren't all ready. <laughs> Go and learn. Learn from Jesus. Walk with Jesus. He's given you his very spirit to learn from. And that's why I think he ends with the, this by saying, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayer and requests. Because this, if you see the disciples before Jesus died, they were really ready to like pick up their swords and fight for him. They were like, look, we have two swords. We're ready. And, <laughs> and it's silly looking back on that, right? But that's often how we are. Look what I, look, I have an awesome fill in the blank. I can be used by you guys. And <laughs> Jesus is like, no, that's not the way we go about it. Because the disciples were willing to fight for Jesus, but they weren't willing to pray with Jesus. When he was in the garden, what did he say? He said, will you just wait with me for an hour? Pray, see what I have to offer you. And so I pray for us as individuals and as a church, we'll be people who don't address these physical issues by just physical means, but we'll go to Jesus in prayer. We'll seek our satisfaction in him. And so to make this intensely purposeful, I, I want you guys to know that this week, Every single one of you will find something that you try to rely physically on yourself for, or maybe even others. You're going to get in something that will stress you out, right? You're going to get to that moment where you're like, Jesus, if you just had this coworker fired, the world would be so much better, right? <laughs> and we're not even thinking at that point. It's just, we just respond. And Jesus goes, will you wait with me? Will you pray with me? Will you pray for this? Because the fact is, most of us don't trust by faith in Jesus for these things. So that's what he's given you. That's what he's welcomed you into. He's welcomed you into his salvation. That by his wounds, we are healed. So by faith, let's take God at his word. Let's stop trusting in ourselves and our abilities. And let's say yes to Jesus. Um, a way you guys can encourage each other in this is when someone comes to you with a problem, pray with them. Okay? That seems simple. But usually we don't do that. Usually we're like, okay, what you got to do? Right? It, it's like, 
Like we just start navigating it. And let's go. Let's, let's go to our Father in prayer because he cares for us. And he, throughout whatever is happening, will give us the peace and satisfaction to meet this need. Pray with me. God, you you give life that no one else can because you've created life. It's it's almost silly how blind we are to that. We create other things to worship. Along the one who created us welcomes to worship himself, which is so good. God, I, I just pray for myself and these people here who have gathered that we'll see when we take you at your word, we trust in Jesus that there is nothing in all creation that can separate us from your love, not even death itself. God, we love you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.